Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, we're very happy to have Joy Press here. <laughs> They're right behind that, you know, I, just, I want them to feel so loved and welcome when they come out here. Joy Press has been writing about TV for more than 15 years. She served as the chief television critic at The Village Voice, then as entertainment editor of Salon, and most recently as an editor at the LA Times, where in addition to commissioning television coverage, she wrote and reported features on the medium. She has contributed to the publications such as New York Magazine, The New York Times, Slate, The Guardian, and she lives right here in Los Angeles. And she will be joined um, with uh, Anne Friedman. Um, she is a contributing writer to The Cut, LA Times, and Gentlewoman. She co-hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend and uh, writes the Anne Friedman Weekly Newsletter. Please welcome Joy and Anne. I know, there's a little adjustment here. Okay, great. Hello. Um, Hi. I'm so excited to talk about this book. It is so full of amazing quotes and facts, and if you are someone who watches lots of TV, just like knowing all of these little details about all the things that have been happening behind the scenes, gold. Um, but I want to start by asking about the role of the showrunner. So most of the women who you write about in this book um, have showrunner as their title, and I think for those of us who don't work in television, we don't really get how big or like how cool or how <laughs> how lauded that job really is. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, the showrunner uh, is a kind of uh, an insane, um, ever-expanding job. Um, it, it seems to, uh, I mean, it means different things, I think, on, on different shows. Um, but, you know, there used to be uh, producers who did the business side of things, and then there were the writers. Um, and at this point, um, a showrunner has become a, 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 a title that encompasses um, all of the sort of um, most important jobs at the top of the show. So it's like, you know, the being the creative head, the, the you know, the CEO, the business head, um, usually you are overseeing the writer's room um, and you are, uh, you know, overseeing hiring choices um, and, and, you know, everything in between. So, um, it, you know, some people, uh, you know, spend most of their time in the writer's room. Sometimes people uh, spend more time um, kind of, you know, liaising with the network or, um, you know, being on set. Um, and, and a lot of the time, I'm, I think a lot of the, the um, showrunners in my book have ended up kind of dividing it, um, whether, they, whether they call themselves co-showrunners or not, because it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and I think... Uh, Someone in, in uh, my book, I think it was Jane Espenson, basically just said, you know, writers are really, don't tend to be super um, uh, 
business-minded people, um, and uh, you know, they sit in a room and they make things and and they have ideas. And so suddenly, you know, if you're a really good writer, you end up kind of being elevated up the ladder until you're in charge of the things that you're actually not necessarily good at. So it's just pure luck if it turns out that you're actually really good at being, you know, the CEO of this enormous television show and being able to. Uh, motivate, you know, your writers, your actors, um, you know, make nice to the executives, and and also like communicate your your creative vision. <laughs> so yeah, no big deal at all. Just those yeah, no. things, right? Um, I I know. So the the first few chapters in your book are. Uh, about Murphy Brown and Roseanne, correct? Yes. And I'm wondering, so so was this, this was the way things were then as well, or is this kind of, like, this role has changed more recently? Like, I, You know, I think the role has been changing, and I think increasingly kind of centralizing on this idea of a showrunner. But, I mean, Diane English, who uh, created Murphy Brown, um, you know, everybody that I talked to who worked on that show sort of said, like, she was this sort of apotheosis of a, of a great showrunner for them. And she really, she started out as a writer. Um, she actually was, I think she was working at PBS in New York and, and uh, got involved in um, uh, rewriting a Ursula Le Guin um, made-for-TV movie, um, of all things. And I think it just gave notes and then ended up kind of rewriting it. And that got her started on writing made-for-TV movies. And, and, and so she sort of worked her way through the writer's room um, and and very much kind of took on that that role of like the you know the creative who was also kind of completely in charge of the set right and then there's speaking of people completely in charge Roseanne yes um, do you do you want to read a little bit from your Roseanne chapter which is full of delights yes <laughs> yes of course uh, you know uh, when I when I started on this book, I did not realize that um, pretty much everybody in my book was going to get rebooted. <laughs> so is that how it happens? Get rebooted? Like, yes. Or they, they okay? <laughs> yes, they get rebooted. Uh, they they're in suspended animation, and then you turn a key, <laughs> and they um, come back to life. And in, in fact, yeah, uh, when I when I interviewed Roseanne, um, she was uh, had sort of no prospects, I think, of 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 this show coming back, and really was sort of looking back, very nostalgic and kind of um, a little bit sadly at, um, at, at the past. So, so she's in a different place now. But um, So this is a, a little, a, a little um, fragment of um, the Roseanne chapter, which um, if you know anything about that show was probably one of the crazier um, sets um, in, in, in modern TV history. Um, so um, a family sits around a cluttered kitchen table arguing and roughhousing. Finally, the man at the table leans over to smooch his wife. She cheerfully wipes off the kiss, letting loose a peal of laughter. That was how America met the Connor family in October 1988. The opening sequence of Roseanne conveys a concrete sense of the working class household. There are bills on the table that are probably overdue, kids interrupting their parents, dowdy clothes and bad hair and faded wallpaper. But most of all, there's that glorious laugh of Roseanne's hanging in the air, a perfect chord of raucousness and affection. The show emphasized working in working class. Roseanne and hubby Dan toil at jobs that are often menial yet hard to keep. 
he cobbles together a living with drywall jobs and she works in plastics factories. But the show's originality resides above all in the character of Roseanne herself. No television sitcom had ever revolved around such a fierce, sharp-tongued virago before. Rarely had such a caustic tone been heard in prime time, one that regularly expressed such brazen resentment toward her duties as homemaker and mother. So uh, Roseanne, um, when she started, was a real working class housewife with young children. Um, and she found her calling as a stand-up comedian. Um, and she sort of uh, called herself a domestic goddess. Um, made her way to Hollywood and um, ended up being paired with uh, a successful um, TV writer named Matt Williams, who himself was um, the son of an Indiana um, assembly line worker. So the idea was that they were going to create a show um, about a family with this matriarch. And um, each of them seemed to think that they were the driving force behind the show. So there were some problems. <laughs> um, so after months of meetings between Roseanne and Matt Williams, um, this, this uh, writer, he turned in a draft of the pilot. Um, and Barr says she was aghast. My character was totally passive, like just about every other woman on TV. June Cleaver was Patty Hearst compared to this character. <laughs> in Barr's account, when she asked what had happened to her character, Matt Williams replied, I just didn't think people would like you as the main character. <laughs> um, he was wrong. Um, so uh, she later wrote that um, Williams couldn't understand that the female character could drive scenes, that the family functioned because of her, not in spite of her. Roseanne said, I gave him books on feminist theory. I lectured him on motherhood and matriarchy for hours and hours, but he never caught on. <laughs> so, um, you know, clearly this is not the ideal partnership by any stretch of the imagination. And the set became like what we might call now a, a hostile workplace. Um, you know, Barr uh, was known to storm off repeatedly. Um, she demanded that the producers and the network be banned from the set. Um, which happened, um, and um, she once claimed that uh, Williams had his assistant producer um, keep a tally of how often she belched and farted on stage, <laughs> just to sort of show how out of control she was. Things got so bad that um, they actually um, asked um, actors John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf um, if they would do the show without Barr. But they refused. And <laughs> um, Goodman uh, later said um, there would be, have been no show as far as I was concerned because she was, in her own beautiful way, she was always right, you know? Very diplomatic. <laughs> um, not one to keep her fury bottled up. Um, Roseanne Bart posted a declaration of war on her dressing room door. It read in part, in I assume giant capital letters, these are the people who are going to be fired if they're not nice to me. <laughs> people who I am the boss of. Everybody. All producers, all writers, all subject to change. And among the names on that list um, was the president of ABC. Uh, and apparently she'd regularly update this shit list to keep track of anybody who opposed her, you know, until the series was a hit and then she would have free reign. Um, and, and, you know, that basically came to pass. Um, you know, in the first season, Roseanne became the second most watched show in America. And by uh, season two, it was number one. 
Um, you know, and the show appeared at a time of economic uncertainty as the stock market crash the year before had sort of curtailed the like dynasty Dallas um, era of, you know, Reagan excess. And over the course of the series, Roseanne Connor was laid off from a parade of low-paying jobs. Um, and Dan Connor, like he had a motorcycle shop that got closed down. Um, he was unemployed. Uh, rarely had the American working class had such poignantly authentic representatives on TV. Roseanne Barr became a TV icon, yet she still felt undermined on her own set, so she threatened to quit. Eventually, Matt Williams was sent packing, and they brought in um, Jeff Harris, who had worked on um, different strokes. Um, but things did not settle down. Um, another figure arrived to convulse the set. His name was Tom Arnold. Um, <laughs> some knowing laughs in the audience. Uh, uh, Barr has, says, has said that uh, after meeting um, Arnold at a comedy club in Minneapolis in the early 80s, they did coke together, and she watched him do a stand-up act in which he killed fish and set them on fire. What's not to love? <laughs> um, so she, um, she recalled that Arnold had this undercurrent of uncomfortableness, like a guy who wants to behave but just can't seem to help himself, a guy who's learned to live with always being sorry for something. So he was a great influence. <laughs> um, they became best friends, and he started writing jokes for her. And, and when she started Roseanne, um, the casting agent told me that she um, originally sort of tried to get them to cast um, Tom Arnold as Dan Connor. Um, but they refused. They pushed back. And um, so... so Arnold ended up playing um, Dan's sidekick, Arnie. Um, but it, by this point, um, Barr was basically leaving her husband for Tom Arnold and insisting that the comedian be hired for the writing staff, um, which of course had been decimated by, the, by all those um, firings that she had promised in that giant poster on her wall. Um, and you know, one of the writers said, you know, we always thought he was 100% talent free. <laughs> but she said, you know, Roseanne was very upset because she thought we didn't respect her choices. And it's like, no, we just don't respect this choice. You have one billion good ideas, but this one is shit. Um, but according to Barr, when Jeff Harris attempted to fire uh, Tom Arnold, he shouted, I'm not fired, you're fired. Arnold then marched over to Barr and urged her to stand up to Harris and show him who was boss. This is not a fucking democracy. Sorry for the children in the audience. <laughs> this is not a fucking democracy. It's a queendom, he said. Um, so uh, Barr and Arnold got married in January of 1990, and two months later, Jeff Harris officially departed. Uh, he announced uh, his departure in a full-page ad in Daily Variety. <laughs> it said, I have chosen not to return to Roseanne next season. Instead, my wife and I have decided to share a vacation in the relative peace and quiet of Beirut. <laughs> so. Yeah. One of, one of the more difficult. Uh, yeah, one show. of the more. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because I think that um, one thing that should have, as I listened to you read that, um, obviously Roseanne was a huge success, the show. Uh, <laughs> italicized Roseanne. And, um, and yet, for the next 40 years, essentially, documented in this book, 
women are told over and over again that uh, their characters are not likable enough, that um, maybe maybe they, they do meet the likability requirement, but then they're like not relatable or not believable. Um, that happens to a few people as well. So like, why didn't this debate end in 1990, whatever, when Roseanne went off the air after all of this success about likability? Well, you know, it's one of the great mysteries uh, of, of our culture um, that these conversations um, about women get revisited over and over again. And you know, what's happening in television is just sort of a reflection of what's happening in the culture. Because um, y you know, you make these advances and then it's almost like it never happened. Um, and you know, I mean, it's something I, I, I had decided to start the book by writing about Roseanne and Murphy Brown because I was really fascinated by the way that those, um, those shows became so central to American culture in the middle of the culture wars. And I thought it would be a really fascinating place to start. I mean, those shows were huge. Everyone was watching these shows. Like when, you know, if you're an entertainment reporter and you see the numbers that, you know, uh, of people who used to watch TV. <laughs> you know, 10 million, 20 million. And, you know, it's like a fraction now. The most popular show, you know, could dream of that. So, um, so these shows were, I mean, when I say they were central, like everyone was watching them. Everyone was talking about them the next day. They were really genuinely uh, important. And, um, you know, and and there were these two shows that were on simultaneously um, that had these incredibly different, powerful female characters. Like, couldn't have been more different. Um, you know, Roseanne was really working class and really, like, take no prisoners, no bullshit, mom, um, you know, loved her family, loved her husband. They wove politics into the show, but it was, ne you know, very rarely didactic. It certainly didn't want to be didactic. Um, you know, and then you had Murphy Brown, which was like this single working woman, as elite as it could be, um, you know, and the show was absolutely, you know, playing on the politics of the day, and you would have characters like, you know, based on, um, you know, Andrew Dice Clay, who is like this incredibly misogynistic comedian, and, uh, you know, and, and they would just take on all of those issues um, at the time. And so, you know, you would think, yes, this has changed the culture forever. And, um, you know, of course, by the time I finished writing the book, you know, and I'm writing it going like, oh, it's so great. That stuff's in the past. It's so different now. Wait, what year was this again? Twenty fifteen. Um, yeah, sorry. This is pre. Yeah, this is pre-election. So, yeah. so I'm I'm writing these chapters kind of in twenty sixteen, and um, you know, and by the time I finished my book, of course, the election had happened, and I was literally every day looking at the news and going back and looking at my notes that I had made on these early chapters, the culture wars, and going, wait, that happened. That exact thing that you know the. Republicans are floating this legislation is the exact thing that they you know that they were floating um, you know in in the Reagan Bush era so um, you know I think what you what you realize is that these things happen again and again and in television um, you know I talked to a lot of people in the industry and I would I would say what how is this possible you had a show like Roseanne Murphy Brown or sex in the city you know and and yet you know, it was like these landmarks that no one wanted to visit. 
wow, you, you have these shows that are incredibly successful and culturally important. Why, why is it so hard to get them on the air? And, um, you know, I think some of, some of the answer was that you, um, up until fairly recently, had um, a network system that was very, it was a very closed system, you know, and um, you had the gatekeepers, um, you know, were, were putting forward what they thought was interesting and what they thought would be most broadly interesting. And, you know, <laughs> um, women, despite being half the population, were considered a sort of minority interest. Minorities were really considered a minority, you know, I mean, people of color were, uh, you know, almost irrelevant to the conversation. And so you continue to have these uh, these shows that would sort of be one-offs. Sometimes they'd try to repeat them, but they would try to repeat them in ways that often felt really um, hackneyed to the audience. They, did, they didn't feel real. They didn't feel genuine. Um, and so sometimes it almost felt like it would take a miracle. I mean, a really good TV show is a miracle. I should just say that. You know, a really good TV, uh, the number of, you know, uh, things that have to go right for a TV show to be good and smart and widely interesting is just, it's just very, very hard anyway. But, you know, if you're giving, uh, you know, nine men and one woman a chance, then your odds of that show, you know, a show aimed at women or created by women or, you know, aimed at, you know, African African American audience, it's going to be much smaller because, you know, your your odds are, it's, it's like catching, you know, lightning in a bottle. Um, you know, and often I think there, people said to me, you know, uh, there was a hesitation. They didn't, they want to hand women money. You know, it's really a lot of money. And so they want to give it to people that they trust and they feel good about. They, um, you know, feel like, uh, you know, if, if a, a show aimed at women is only going to only going to speak to women, um, guys aren't going to connect with the characters. I mean, I think that's changing. Um, I hope that's changing. But, you know, there was a sense in which, um, you know, uh, the, the idea of identifying or empathizing with somebody who wasn't like you was, um, you know, maybe felt a little bit strange. Well, yeah, by 2011, I think you quote, I don't know if it's an executive. It's definitely a powerful man in the industry who complains of labia saturation. Oh, yeah. Um, by, the time, by, by that point, I think there are a handful of shows centering on women's experiences on television. Well, that was the moment. That was actually the moment when, like, I think the sort of uh, seed of, of some kind of book started to plant itself mm. in my head. Because that was, a, it's like 2011, 2012 was when... Uh, you had a wave of shows. Um, you had New Girl, and I'm trying to think, there were a whole bunch of girl shows. Girls, and Two Broke Girls, Two Broke Girls, and The Mindy Project. And yeah, I think Two Broke Girls might have been the thing that was, you know, like there was like labia overload. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Whitney Cummings said, like, you know, like vaginas paid for my house. Um, so, but yes, you definitely had a sort of backlash as soon as there were like a tiny any number of, you know, shows uh, created by women, featuring women, there was definitely a sense of like, okay, enough! <laughs> Too many. 
So is is what's happening? Was then there like a backlash to that? Because at this point, 2011 is a while ago, or like at the point when you were reporting this, did it still seem like the ranks of women creators were going to grow and grow and grow? Well, so I I started writing this at the end of 2015, and you know I think between this sort of post-girls wave was slower, but there, but it was very steady. I actually made a timeline because I was trying to figure it out and see what how how it actually you know shook out. And there were like you know a few shows that were kind of you know created by women with sort of female protagonists kind of over the decades. And and then you know you kind of got to like the 2000s and there were more. And then after 2011, it got very steady. Um, you know I think. Uh, I don't know, you know, three, four a year maybe. And around the time that I started the book and kind of it like started talking to people and it started settling in, there was just a wave. There was a deluge. And so I think it was a little bit of a delayed reaction. Um, you, you know, you just, I think in the, at the, uh, in the conclusion of my book, I started to make a list. And even by the time I published the book, by the time it went to print, like it was already, you know, had been completely overtaken. I mean, there's like 10, 20 uh, new shows. So there's no doubt there was like a, a, a momentum. Um, but I think part, part of that was structural. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, the network system is really fracturing. And so there's just been a lot of, um, there's a hunger for content in general. I mean, TV writers are like, you know, everybody's looking for writers um, because there's so much, uh, you know, there's so many streaming channels or cable channels. Um, and, you know, when there are, um, uh, you know, new outlets, they're a little bit more open. You know whether they're more open because it's you know important to be open, or whether they're open because they have less ability to go after the really successful male showrunners. You know that's a different question. But a lot of the shows that I um, talk about at the very end that kind of came out since um, like 2015, I, I, the vast majority of those shows have been on streaming networks. You know, I mean Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. Um, you know, but also like some of the cable networks have have kind of stepped up um, and tried to diversify, um, you know, maybe try to go for like 30% female instead of, you know, five or 10. <laughs> so I, I want to ask about how you selected which creators and which shows to feature. I mean, I definitely saw a through line where especially, I would say, in the first half of the book, uh, every woman who's making her own show in one chapter has been, we've met her in the writer's room the chapter before. She's kind of like been around. Yes. Um, and I, but then again, there's also plenty of television that has been meaningful or centering women that has either not been produced by a woman or run, the show has not been run by a woman. Right. Or um, there's also lots of women creators uh, who have been parts of shows that did not feature women prominently. So I'm wondering yes. what your criteria are and how you decided to kind of string these together. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will I will say it was that was actually the hardest part um, is was sort of figuring out a structure for it because really I was like a kid in a candy shop and I, you know, I, I really if left to my own devices and if I uh, didn't have to finish the book and um, make a living, I, I I probably would have just spent like ten years writing, you know, some enormous. Um, history of, of the world of television. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of decided I really wanted to tell a story. And so, so yes, yeah, so what I tried to do was try to 
have a through line of people. I mean, a lot of the time you had, you had, you know, Amy Sherman Palladino, who had worked on Gilmore Girls. Jenny Cohen had worked on, um, I mean, sorry, Amy Sherman Palladino of Gilmore Girls had worked on Roseanne. Jenny Cohen had worked on Gilmore Girls very briefly. Um, got got uh, got the boot very, very quickly. Um, you know, I think Jill Soloway had, had worked on a bunch of shows, including um, some Shonda shows. But, you know, the other part of it, and particularly towards the end of it, I think one of the things that was interesting was I was trying to find people who um, were both uh, kind of breaking, um, you know, breaking new ground and also sort of came in in different ways. Like, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me about, um, like, Broad City is, you know, they really kind of created their own, um, they created their own path. I mean, they created it, and, you know, Issa Rae has done that since then. I mean, they created uh, their own show, their own YouTube show. There was no other path for them to take. Um, as opposed to, you know, Tina Fey, who came up through this sort of, you know, comedy world and through SNL. Um, or, uh, you know, Liz Merriweather, who um, does New Girl, who came up through theater. And, and in fact, a, a bunch of the women, I realized later, I mean, Mindy Kaling had sort of created um, her own sort of off-off-off-Broadway show um, in which, I can't remember, was she Ben Affleck or... Or Matt Damon. Or Matt Damon. She and her best friend did Matt... Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and I can't remember which one she was, but uh, you know, so so a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the wins, you know, obviously Lena Dunham had had done and uh, made an independent film, and so a, a lot of the uh, the creators in the second half of the book had, and Jill Soloway had in her youth created um, uh, the real live Brady Bunch. So you know, a lot of the creators in the second half of the book had sort of found a side door. They had really figured out a way to kind of create their own luck because you know TV felt like a closed enterprise, and so they did an end run um, around the gatekeepers, and that to me was really interesting. And so people kind of ended up coming to them um, to some degree, as opposed to you know in the the uh, you know somebody like Diane. Um, Although, I mean, uh, Diane English actually, I guess, found her way, her own end run by rewriting uh, a, you know, PBS TV show, so. <laughs> Everybody has their own way, right? Yeah, I um, mean, the, the older women that I talk to, because um, I, I sort of talk a little bit about the, the, the prehistory in the introduction, and I did talk to a lot of older women, and, you know, most of them came up um, by, you know, started out as, like, secretaries. They're now called assistants, but back then it was all women, so they called them secretaries. Um, and, you know, and they really just kind of stuck around and figured out ways to make themselves useful. Um, you know, often had a kind of, you know, a male mentor who was sort of a paternal figure who recognized their talent and let them, you know, um, do some writing, or, you know, as shows, um, you know, went on, they needed, like, a woman. So there was always, like, the woman in the room. And, and a lot of the older women uh, said that they had actually never met any of their colleagues mm -hmm. um, from that time. A lot of them had, they, like, they meet each other now, and they're like, why weren't we friends? And it's like, oh, because there was only one of us. Um, you know, and and in fact, I mean, it was somebody, somebody told me that... Uh, she once, uh, a producer was hiring her for a show and for the writer's room and said, you know, uh, I'm a little bit worried because I feel like we might have too many women in the room. She said, how many do you have? And she's like, well, it's you and another woman. <laughs> 
So the answer to how many women is too many was like two. Two. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question and then let everyone else have a chance. So be thinking of your question. Don't waste those first precious five seconds of awkward silence. Um, So I would count myself among the people who kind of like to believe that if we replaced some of the people who are in power... um, like with more women or more feminist-minded people that maybe things would change for everyone who's working in a workplace. And I think um, your book is full of examples of showrunners who have tried to implement colorblind casting, Shonda Rhimes, implement gender-blind casting. Who, which one is that? I forget. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I can't remember. Lots either. of blind casting. Both color and gender-blind yes. casting. Transformative hiring. Like, lo- lots of different sort of um, ways to address who has been traditionally shut out of a writer's room. Um, but then, you know, we also have things like... Um, like there's a part in your book where Lena Dunham is like, whoops, I just made a show for people like me, actually. Didn't mean to do that. Um, which is kind of like part of the problem that is described over and over again. Yes. And, um, and we've also seen, you know, problems with harassment and things that happen on lots of other sets and workplaces replicated on, you know, sets and in writers' rooms run by some of the women in this book or some of the people in this yes. book. And so I'm just curious about how you feel about that question of like if we could wave a wand and kind of make a representation representative leadership for you know across the board all the media we consume or if we could change some of this stuff more structurally would things really change like what's going on well uh, you know i mean that's a big question it's a little question to end on isn't it like a real tiny one yes yeah. <laughs> we'll throw it to the crowd what yeah. do you guys think right we'd be here <laughs> till tomorrow <laughs> you know i mean i like it seems like a no brainer to me that uh, you know if if you change the the way that shows are structured um, i mean it can only be a good thing and and i you know i think that the the uh, we're really at the beginning of attempts to sort of rethink how the shows are done. And, um, it, you know, do any of those attempts go far enough? I don't know. Do they? Can you legislate, you know, creativity? I mean, to some degree, yes, because the fact is that, <laughs> um, y- y- you know, it would have been helpful, I think, to have more people in, like, uh, a more diverse writer's room for girls. Because, you know... You are having a conversation, and different people are bringing in their own life experiences, and that's how it works. And these shows are very, very personal, and that's why they're so good. But um, you know, input uh, from multiple directions is is going to be helpful. And you know, do, do any of these uh, these uh, ways that people are working does colorblind casting work? Well, it works in that um, you know, Shondaland shows are incredibly diverse. You know, you could make arguments that, um, you know, the shows don't always actually address race or, you know, gender or, um, you know, uh, you know, gender um, or sexuality, but but it's certainly a start and it certainly, you know, creates a cast that looks more, you know, like um, the world does. But, you know, I mean, I think the other problem is that pressure of representation and it's sort of like also the bigger picture of like expecting one show to carry all of the weight. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it feels 
uh, crazy. You know, you have like a hundred shows about like a quirky white guy. And, you know, nobody's like, that quirky white guy isn't speaking for all of us. Because all that quirky white guy has ever had to do is speak for himself and be a quirky individual. You know, I mean, they were like, I mean, nobody was going to like, you know, bored to death. Um, or, you know, I mean, dare I say his name, but Louis. I mean, yes, now people are complaining about Louis, but, you know, at the time, it, people weren't like, oh, you know, he, we need to see more. So uh, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the very small number of these shows. I mean, there's enormous pressure on a show like Transparent to represent. And, and you know, and they're aware of that. And so they're trying as hard as, you know, as they can to sort of work with that pressure. Um, you know, I don't think Lena Dunham was really thinking about that, you know. And, um, you know, I, I don't know uh, if Issa Rae thinks a lot about that. But, it, but it, she has to, right? Because it's like she's the first, you know, like uh, African-American HBO auteur. And so it just, it feels like, well, we should have... 10, you know, I mean, if there were 10 African-American, you know, HBO auteurs, then it wouldn't be an issue because everybody could just sort of like do something creative and do something different. And that's all, you know, these people want to do is tell, you know, interesting stories. Um, so I think there's like the micro structural of like, yes, this clearly the, the, I mean, if nothing else, like the Me Too conversation has suggested that like things are really broken and, you know, stuff needs to change. Are, is it going to change? I don't know. Because as we've seen, things seem to just go back, you know. Um, but hopefully this time, uh, you know, people, a lot of people talk to me about unconscious bias. And so, the, you know, unconscious um, it, it goes away when we all become aware of it. So nobody can say they're unconscious anymore. I mean, I think that's really sort of one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is like, you know, now we know. So what are we going to do? Questions? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Sorry. I have a kind of related question. Um, Rachel Morrison was just the first ever woman to be nominated for cinematography. I was mad about it and doing a lot of reading. And I've learned that a lot of women are, you know, graduating from film school, but then they never, and they haven't yet made it much past that assistant stage. Do you think that process is something that's changing? Can you speak to that a Yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, directing and cinematography and... Like anything, but a lot of women are, you know, going into film, and not a lot of women are staying in film and making it past... Well, you know, I don't know if I can speak to film, but I mean, I did actually talk, um, a, a lot of uh, the showrunners talked to me about the problem of directors. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, I literally can't tell you how many times I, I talked to a showrunner who said, we have a list, um, they give us a list, you know, the studio, the network gives us a list of directors that we're supposed to use. And it's almost always all white men. And, you know, uh, we'll go back and we'll say, well, what about this woman? Or what about the, you know, and they'll say, oh, yeah, they're difficult. Or, oh, I heard they were not, you know, I heard that there was a problem with them. And so, you know, this is something that I think is now being talked about. Um, I don't know that it's been resolved. I think that there are various different attempts um, to, 
to try to create systems, try to create mentoring systems, try to, I know some of the showrunners, I'm Ava DuVernay and Melissa Rosenberg at um, Jessica Jones. I mean, you know, there are attempts to legislate this by saying we're going to have 50% of our show or 100% of our show be directed by women or, you know, gender nonconforming, like just any kind of uh, attempts to, to, to change the system because, um, you know, you can't work your way up the ladder if you don't get a first try. I mean, it was this, it's the same with, with writer's rooms, you know. I mean, you have to get your foot in the ladder in order to be able to climb up to, you know, ever get anywhere. So... I think it's I think it's changing a little bit. I think there's definitely some acknowledgement within like the directors guild and things like that that it's a really bad scene. But uh, you, you know I haven't seen it changing massively. But I do I do see that within these um, you know specific some of these specific shows that there are showrunners who are making it a priority and you know pulling in directors. Um, I, you know I know Jill Soloway said like she uh, they actually. Um, uh, has a golden ticket system um, and, and finds directors who haven't had a shot on TV yet in order to literally get them into the system so that they have that on their resume and they can say, I directed Transparent and that gets them to the next level. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it's changing a little bit. Great. Yeah? Um, so Me Too started in Hollywood, not in Wall Street or in Washington or in tech, which I think it's kind of a reflection of what this industry means for kind of its cultural influence. So I'm curious to hear what you think about how um, having more women as showrunners, as directors, as producers is going to have a ripple through the rest of the country for young kids, boys or girls watching the shows. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious to see if there will be... Um uh, sort of very obvious um, attempts to sort of address Me Too. I, I, you know, I think it would be hard to find a woman who hasn't been like dramatically personally affected by the conversation and has not kind of, and certainly, you know, everyone, I think, hopefully, has, you know, has done some thinking about it and it's penetrated. So I, I feel like, uh, you know, no one is perfect, and I think having women in charge is not going to solve all the problems in the world. You know, having, um, uh, you know, female showrunners and gender nonconforming showrunners is not going to fix everything. But, but I think having people who are actually aware of these problems and have probably, um, certainly, you know, some of the people that I talked to for the book, um, you know, had, um, you know, had terrible experiences in writers' rooms. And, and, and frankly, it wasn't necessarily something they would talk to me about before Me Too. It was actually, I think, probably like the biggest taboo. Um, because you, you, you couldn't survive in the industry if you call people out. I mean, it's, it was, it's actually the most shocking thing to me about all of this was how many women stood up and how many women in Hollywood stood up because, um, you know, you were supposed to be a good sport. You could not work if you were not a good sport. You just put up with it, you know? And, and I think certainly women in my generation just, like, not only did you put up with it, but you just didn't think about it because it's just the way it was, and you, you could not function. And so I think that there's, there's got to be a huge shift when you have, like, literally, you know, an entire industry kind of going, wait, 
not only is this not okay, but like we can actually talk to each other about it and, you know, uh, say this is this is you know horrible. Everything's got to get reorganized. So I you know I don't know if it'll show up. Um, you know hopefully you won't sort of have a whole series of um, you know episodes, very special episodes. Um, you know the Me Too episode. Um, and you know I mean you had something like uh, you know in in the last season of Girls. I mean Lena Dunham actually you know there was actually an episode in which um, her character uh, has a really really creepy interaction with a very famous writer um, and it was a very um, uncomfortable and you know I thought really well done episode and it sort of you know um, pre-existed the conversation um, but you know I, I sort of hope to start seeing more interesting ways of um, approaching it but yeah like I don't I, you know the hashtag me too episode that would be kind of a bummer yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, I haven't cracked the book yet, but uh, one thing that seems to be a common thread amongst uh, the disparity amongst men and women are what I'm curious uh, in the book. I mean, are the women showrunners paid the same as the male showrunners? Is there a sliding scale? How does that work? Um, I, I think the answer is no. Um, I had very, uh, very few showrunners who were willing to cough up numbers. Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure where Shonda stands on that scale. Um, I think she, at this point, probably does pretty well for herself. I know that, um, you know, I mean, Jenji Cohen was somebody who, who basically said, I, I got screwed. Like, I'm just still mad about it, you know, because I know that my male colleagues made a lot more than I did. And, you know, she went to Showtime and basically sort of helped to kind of create, um, you know, Showtime's uh, ethos with, with weeds and really helped kind of put them on a critical map and, um, you know, really didn't, didn't get remunerated the way that, you know, um, uh, or, you know, even with Orange is the New Black, I think she, she feels like, you know, she's, she's not, she's not being paid on the order of like, you know, Matt Weiner. Um, and, and so there's definitely, a, a, there's definitely a disparity, but you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, is, is sort of under the covers. And so it becomes very hard to compare apples to oranges. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing that someone said to me is, you know, it, it's often such a struggle for women to get their shows made. They're so grateful a lot of the time, you know, I mean, like, uh, you know, I don't mean to generalize about women, but I, I think often, you know, women are just, they don't necessarily negotiate as hard. They're, you know, I mean, in this case, probably their agents aren't negotiating as hard. They're just like, oh, you got a show. I got a show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't know how much that's changing. I, I hope it's changing, but I think there's definitely, I, I'm, I'm sure that, that that disparity remains for sure. Mm. Yep. Um, I think that there's been a real moral shift in America to the consciousness and soul and the seat of Hollywood. I think Hollywood writers don't like guns. People are talking out, especially in television, talking out about issues and not afraid to do that. Um, and men, that get a co-equal and tell them how much you're paid. Go to a woman who's your co-equal and tell her how much you're paid of your own initiative. She doesn't have to ask you, it's on her. 
go tell her what you're paid. That's how we get. It's not sexy when women are poor. It's not sexy. And, you know, do the right thing. You know, and say you're doing it. Tell everybody else you know you're doing that. Make a stand. And, you know, I really think that Hollywood is the new D.C. You're, we're the smart people. We can't rely on New York for the intelligentsia. There are no more public intellectuals running around telling us good things. D.C. is uh, just horrible. It's, it's going to be Hollywood. And this, you know, we have to face up to the fact. We, you know, we're the moral consciousness of America. And given that, why can't we get some good dialogue for women in relationships, out of writers' rooms, instead of this quirky white guy stuff? You know, so I hear some of this dialogue, and I'm just thinking, how could women ever say things like that, you know? And I mean, I know I'm not alone. You know, but a man, it's like dream dialogue or something, maybe. But especially in relationship dialogue, really just not savvy, you know? Well, and it's funny, I mean, when you were talking about, uh, you know, Hollywood being the, uh, you know, the sort of moral center, I mean, that, again, going back to the culture wars, you know, that, I mean, the, the, you know, Murphy Brown era was that, you know, the moment that, you know, this idea of the Hollywood elite um, became like this sort of, you know, trope uh, that that the right, you know, the the religious right and the conservatives kind of used uh, to to um, you know beat Hollywood with, and so I yeah, there's definitely a, a sense at this point that we're back to you know Hollywood being um, that you know that sort of uh, demonized ultra liberal um, you know realm as opposed to the the heartland family values. So the first time I saw Modern Family, I cried. You know, I mean, it's brilliant. Other question? Do we have time for a few more? Okay. Yeah. Um, in like the era of streaming and internet and everything like that, how should female showrunners react and position their shows in a way that, um, like I think of Good Girls with Bulls. It was a great series. It was canceled. And now it's coming back because so many people online were talking about how great it was and probably at the top it was just a group of people who felt like it didn't relate to them. So how can audiences show the showrunners that the shows, even though that they might not have broad appeal, that they're yeah, I mean, I, th I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a right answer to that. I mean, I, I think that we're in the middle of uh, a sort of really chaotic period, and uh, you know, you have a lot of streaming networks that are um, kind of casting around, um, not quite sure what their um, identity is, and you know, I think a lot of female showrunners kind of benefited from that, uh, and it's sort of remains to be seen whether that's going to continue. So I think that, yeah, the showrunners are going to have to basically really kind of speak to their constituency and find way. I mean, that's always happened. Like, um, uh, in the intro of the book, I sort of mentioned the show Cagney and Lacey. And Cagney and Lacey was a show in the early 80s about two sort of, you know, female um, police detectives, which was incredibly novel and weird at the time. Like, put two women together two women police detectives together and they weren't like sexy they were like middle aged and uh, and and the show sort of got cancelled a couple times and they actually like mounted a campaign and I think like Ms. Magazine put them on the cover as like these feminist icons and they, they really you know the, the audience uh, you know women like rose up and said 
we want this show back. And so it worked. And that was a point, you know, this was like CBS. Um, so, you know, I, I think campaigns for those kind of niche audiences could be increasingly successful. Um, because really, they're, you know, they're looking, I mean, uh, a network like Amazon or, you know, Netflix, I mean, they're, they're looking for demographics, right? So they don't have to have a show that has everybody. We have time for more. I was just follow up to your last comment. What do you think about the uh, possibility of the oversaturation of Netflix? I read this article about how Netflix was ordering like 800 shows for 2018, or like developing 800 shows for 2018. What's your yeah? I saw that because I I saw a conversation on Twitter between um, television critics, kind of going like, "Oh my god," (laughs) (laughs) and I kind of thought like, "I'm really glad I'm not a TV critic anymore," Um, because you have to rethink how how do you cover TV. I mean, I, you know, I've been a TV critic. I've edited TV sections. I mean, I think we're in this moment where it's like a great explosion. And so, um, you know, you do have to sort of rethink how you cover it. You have to rethink how you watch it. Um, and, you know, I don't think any of this stuff's going to last. I think we're just in this moment of chaos, you know. And I, I think, you know, the, the bad scenario is that, like, a couple of behemoths win and everything else dies off and you end up with the same kind of homogenous, um, you know, network scenario that you had before. And, you know, uh, the good, you know, the, the ideal scenario is that, like, more flourish, that you have these platforms and that, you know, more and more platforms pop up and they allow, you know, uh, sort of like a cacophony of voices um, and, you know, just kind of knock out the idea of these central gatekeepers who, you know only want to see the quirky white guys. <laughs> I have a question. Um, to the last question. It, it was, the, it was the, the question about the intersection of uh, sexism and ageism, um, particularly for um, middle-aged women in Hollywood. I and mean, everyone loves sort of, whether you're a man or woman, the, the hot young writer or the hot young writer. Yeah. But will, I mean, do, do older women, um, do they still have a shot? Can they still have the same thing as, as there's some of their male colleagues that, you know, you could be 50, 60, 70 and still creating shows. Yes. Yeah. Well, 50 is the new 20, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's definitely a huge problem. I mean, I I definitely talked to older um, TV writers and showrunners who said, like, it's a it's a big problem. Um, I think that, again, the, the proliferation right now of shows and platforms has made it a little bit less of an issue. And I, so I think really talented people, as long as they are sort of able to adapt to the current moment, um, are, you know, are finding um, places. And certainly, like somebody asked me today about the ages of the um, showrunners in my book. And I mean, that, a pretty good percentage of them are over 40. Like, most of them are over 40. Um, you know, I think, uh, obviously, Amy Schumer in Broad City um, and Lena Dunham aren't. But, you know, I, I feel like there's, there's definitely more room. There's, there's, you know, I can't say that ageism has gone away. Um, but certainly the, the showrunners I talked to were super aware of it and, and are sort of trying to work against it. So... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.